0: Today we're continuing on in our vision provision series and this is a a pretty important series that I'm hoping we're, we're going to spend the first part of this year sort of laying out the framework of some very important things that have been are and we hope to see going on in the life of our church family. And the foundation of this series was really built on one overarching truth. There are several ideas and truths we're going to speak about, but there's really sort of one idea that we're going to be revisiting over these next months. It's so significant that it's, it sort of sifts everything we're talking about. Everything we're thinking about, praying about goes through it. And we defined it in detail last week by looking at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. In, in that text, we read something somewhat sobering. As Nehemiah inquired about the state of the people of God in the city of Jerusalem, he was told that the once great people of God in the once great city of God was literally in, in disarray. The, the walls, which are far more significant than just brick and mortar, as we said last week, really, really represented sort of a, a deep and discouraged spirit that the people of God had. And that teaching is online, so I obviously, for time's sake, cannot revisit the whole whole thing this morning. But I really wanted, I'm encouraging you to listen to it if you have not. And for the sake of continuity, I'll just briefly revisit what we mined out of that last week. We learned that contrary to our fast-paced, instant results culture, God has always been in the somewhat slow and steady business of using ordinary people like you and I to do extraordinary things for His kingdom. And so the premise of this series is really rooted in spending some time looking at things that are, are realistic. When we say vision in this room, a lot of times we have these ideas, these grandiose ideas, which there's nothing wrong with them. But what I'm saying is that sometimes we, we so miss the way God is working because we have these preconceived ideas or, or notions or, or expectations of what He should be doing or how He should be doing. And in the church planning world, we like to say that the, the greatest threat to the future of the church is if we can only think about it in past terms. In other words, some people when they think of the future in their own lives or the way God is working, they'll, they'll sort of transport their memories back to something that happened 20 or 30 years ago, a, a season of life of the church or, or in culture that is very different than today. And so one constant that we see in the people of God throughout the Bible is this sort of idea of of looking forward, of of pressing on and trying to follow God where he leads. We're not trying to go back to the places. We raise our Ebenezers, certainly, and, and do things in remembrance. We want to be thankful for the way God has worked, and you'll see why that's an important statement here at the back end of my teaching today. But we don't want to rest in what we called the what is. And that's the tension we're going to be talking about over these next months. This idea of the what is... And what could be. So over these next weeks, we're going to be looking through the book of Nehemiah to show us how this is true. Because it's the story of what happens when a group of God's people find themselves in a common and healthy tension. What we spoke about last week. They, they've become keenly aware of the fact that they are stuck in the middle of what presently is and what could be. And when I say stuck, being stuck is a problem. But being in the middle actually is not the problem. I, I want to just reiterate what I said about the way we see life, and I think the way God sees life. Most humans, and I'm you know, certainly, I think this way, we tend to see life with like goals and end caps. And so we, we're migrating to get to a goal, and we think we've accomplished something when we've gotten to the goal. And that's very true. But if you look at the way God works, if you read the scripture, what you see is God certainly cares about goals and progress. But the most important part of the goal is the space in between where we are now and where we're heading. In other words, the process... I would actually say is more important than the goal. Because it is in the process that we learn to follow Jesus. It's in the process that we learn to, uh, to trust in him and to rest in him. It's in the process where he corrects our minds and our thoughts. And so I'm not at all advocating for the fact that we don't have goals. But what I'm saying is, is in a fast-paced results sort of uh, instant gratification culture, what happens is, is we simply think the goals are the end game. And that's a great way to live a life of progress that's utterly hollow in the middle. And that's what I want us to be thinking about in our church. Over time, what happens in this text is the, the people of God are so consumed by a future vision, in other words, by a place God is leading them, that they actually begin to make it a reality. The grace of God, working through his people, brings these things to fruition. And if you're wondering why, we usually spend a a little bit of time at the beginning of each year talking about these ideas. This is not because there's anything like extravagantly bad or wrong. There aren't, uh, don't get me wrong, we have no shortage of challenges here. But we don't have any like crippling problems that are sort of making me teach like this in a knee-jerk reaction. This is a very natural thing in the life of a church, in the life of God's people. This recognition of where we are and where we're going. Because God has always had a future plan on earth for His church. And remember, when we say church here, what we mean is you, is you and me. That's us. The church meets in spaces, but the church is not a space. The church is us. And so if we believe that God absolutely has a purpose and a future for every single person that loves him and follows him, then we have to believe, we have to connect these dots, you might even say, that our individual lives are directly connected to the future of this church because this church is made up of people like you and me. Alright, so throughout this time, we're going to revisit this question a lot, the, the what is and the what could be, and this leads me to the only truth I want to share with you this morning, and it is the same exact point that I gave last week, and uh, you know, sometimes, uh, it's, fu- it's kind of funny, I feel like I could, I could teach on a point for like 12 weeks, and sometimes I envy, like 50 years ago, You're allowed to like talk here for 90 minutes, Uh, not anymore now. If I go past 38, most of you will leave and go to five guys. So I wanted to take what I talked about last week and separate it into two sections so we could devote a thorough amount of time to this idea. So the point is the same, but the application you will see is very different. The first thing we learned from Nehemiah is this, is that if we want to build a future, and this is true for any people, but we're talking particularly about restoration, then we must be keenly aware of our our present circumstances. And I'll reread to you this section of Nehemiah where this comes from. They said to me, this this is sort of the, the folks that went out to scout what was going on in Jerusalem. They came back to Nehemiah and said, those who survived the exile, remember the exile was... The, the Babylonians destroyed the Israelites basically three different times, leveled the city, and the exile is sort of like the people of God were, were scattered. It's a pretty rough time in the history of God's people. Those who survived all that, survived the exile, and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem, they said, is broken down. And keep in mind, a wall in ancient days was pretty important. It was what protected the city and allowed it to flourish and prosper. So the, walls of Jerusal- the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. The idea behind this is like leveled, sacked to the ground. When I heard these things, Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven, And I want to reiterate what I said last week about that last sentence because we're going to get to that, not this week, but in the weeks that follow. What I find fascinating about this is that Nehemiah's first response to what is going on, his, his awareness of his circumstances, and this is true no matter wh- whether or not they're good or bad in our lives, is to bend the knee and pray. Here, he senses that the, the people of God are in trouble. And so he is grieved to, in the bone marrow of his soul, to the core of who he is, he is grieved. And he sits down, he fasts, he prays, he weeps and gets before the God of heaven. In other words, his first thought and action isn't, we got to get the wall built, the goal, right? Let's get that wall built real quick. His first step is to stop, to slow down in order to be able to move more quickly. And he spends some time in a broken way loving uh, his Father in heaven and being loved by his Father in heaven. And so there's some interesting things here that I want to point out. And the first thing that I want to share today is that I, I really do want to share with you why I genuinely believe with all my heart that God still wants to do great things through us. That we have a nine-year history now at this church, but that, and that history is very significant. It's comprised much of who we are, but there's also a future to our church and where God is taking us. And I share a quote with you from the great Greek philosopher Aristotle. He described this human condition, this idea of where we are and where we're trying to go like this, when he said, the soul never thinks without a picture. Let me, let me read that again. The soul never thinks without a picture. And what he was saying in that statement is that people will seldom, if ever, become something they are not yet, unless they have a clear picture or vision of what that future could be for them in their lives. In other words, our souls, our minds... Our hearts need to drift, we need to know the present circumstances, but we need to be able to drift beyond them, to imagine a little bit about what the could be is. And so, when we speak of vision, I'm not trying to talk about anything hokey or crazy here, I'm just trying to say that God has a vision for your life, a vision is a a future purpose. And when we speak of it like this, and what we're talking about over the next months individually and as a body, this tension is a healthy one. The what is and the what could be should not just be something we think about at the beginning of a year or now you know it's hard to believe we're already in the second month of 2020. We're actually now, you know, almost midway through the first quarter of it. This idea is sort of us it's a synonym for the process of sanctification that God is always working in our lives to bring about a deeper level of love and understanding. of the grace of Jesus Christ. So we are perpetually in process. We might think that we're hitting the goals in life, and I'm not denying that we're hitting some, but I'm telling you to follow Jesus means you are always in the middle because there is no way we can be perfected under heaven on this earth, and that's part of the beauty of the Christian faith. If you're a goal person like me, it drives you nuts. You want to rip your hair out because you can't actually map that out. But if you actually understand the beauty of what Jesus does in our lives, what he says is he's designed our faith so that there's never a time where we are without need for him. And this is true in this passage here. And so this idea that I wanted to share with you today... Is an important one, and I wanted to validate it with Scripture. There's lots of Scriptures, not just this text in Nehemiah, but earlier. Abe, our worship, reader, uh, excuse, excuse me, our worship leader, he read to you a section of John chapter 14, 12 through 14, and there Jesus literally says this. He says that in his absence, in other words, when he goes to the Father after his death, burial, and his resurrection, he says we're going to be able to not only continue the work that he did on earth. He says we're actually going to be able to do greater things than he did on earth. And that is because, we won't get into this today, but the reason that is is because when he left, he sent us his Holy Spirit. And so what happened is the Christian faith moved from a small group of people in Jerusalem to, uh, to a global movement that still exists this day because the Spirit is everywhere. He is in us and working in all corners of the world to bring the truth and the light and the grace of Jesus Christ to the world. So that's why I say our assumption should always be God is and desires to work in our life. And when I say God wants to do greater things through us, what what I mean is that much like the people in Nehemiah's story, there is a current what is here. And if we believe what we read in Nehemiah, if we trust the words of Jesus, then what that means is we should be keenly aware of our present circumstances in life. No matter what they are, good or bad, but we should also have a, a, a relentless hope that God wants to continue to bring about himself in our lives. In other words, he loves us as we are, as a church family, as individuals, but he loves us enough to not leave us this way. There's always a future, a future step, you might say, with Jesus, and it's not about him or us sort of checking boxes of progress It's sort of the same way you think about a a relationship you have with somebody. The time you spend with them, the ups and the downs, the trials of life, the goods and the bads, those things are formational experiences that make a relationship more healthy. You wouldn't, you know, if you're married and you, uh, you had an argument with your wife... I speak not from experience here. I've never had one of those. So if you have, you can let me know what those are like. But you, know, you might have an argument with your wife and you make up. Okay, so I, I checked the box. I, may, you know, I made it up. I said I was sorry. That's not how relationships work. The idea is you, you're trying to figure out what it means to, to repent when you do something wrong in a marriage or, or to repent before God. All of these things shape us. And that shaping is what makes us like Jesus. So the process I would argue is actually more important than the end result, because you can't have the end result without the process. And so it's clear to see that, at least in our church family, God has done some wonderful things. I was thinking a lot about this this week, through, through, through us over the years. And that's why I want to say, the reason why these first truths we're talking about are not... Uh, I, I want to sort of create a distinction between idealism and realism. You have to have some idealism to get someplace, But I'm telling you, what's killing most of us in our world today... It's idealistic expectations. You know, the advent of social media, looking at other people's families, all of these things we are, we are constantly before us are these ideals of perfection that are anything but perfection. And so what I would like to talk about is realistic vision, is the fact that God can even work through that difficulty. So we are inundated with, with sort of these perfection ideals. But the truth is that even, even if something truly is a perfect ideal, it did not begin that way there is a subtext and a story that got it there and that's the idea of what I want to talk about over these weeks The what is shows us that God has already done some great things here. The question that we begin to consider is, what what do we think he can do? Or do we even have an expectation that he's got a future for us? Are we content with just showing up here on Sundays and in community groups, two things I deeply love and value? Or do we think there's actually something more significant, something that God wants to add on to the life of this church to continue to influence our world here locally and abroad in the name of Jesus? And here's where we find ourselves in that healthy tension we've been speaking about. Are we just settling? Apply this to your own life too. Are you settling for the what is in your life? Are you sort of like celebrating the victories Christ gave you 10 years ago? Do you have fresh and modern stories of what he's doing in you now? Are you embracing a rhythm of complacency and comfort? Or are you thinking about the future of your life in Jesus Christ? What his could be is for you. And here's why I want you to strongly, I want to strongly recommend that you consider the, the could be. By giving you a little history of how God has already worked at our church. I said last week and this week that one of the best ways that we can think about the future is to be keenly aware of our present circumstances. At the end of the book of Nehemiah, at the end of the, the teachings in John, God's kingdom is going to get built. The wall is reestablished. The kingdom is currently being built. Those, those claims are actually promises, uh, not Nehemiah, but the, pr- the claim from Jesus that have yet to fully be fulfilled. And so what's beautiful about this is that we can reflect a little bit on what Jesus has already done here, on what he has been doing and how he's sort of made good on this promise that we we see how God works in the Old Testament in Nehemiah, but we have personally experienced, those of you that have been with us for any amount of time, what Jesus says in John 14. And so this restoration that we know now has not always been like this. October 10th in 2010 is when we officially began meeting in this movie theater or several other ones on the other side. We did some stuff in here prior to that over the summer just trying to like figure out what church in a movie theater would look like. But the interesting thing about the restoration that is now is that at one point it was not anything. At one point like today I think the movie is like Bad Boys 2 or something. That's all that was going on in these theaters. Now what's happening is is there's a church that has met weekly here for just shy of 10 years. And this church was birthed out of a vision. It was birthed out of an idea. We looked at our community, we prayed about a lot of places, and we really felt that this is where God wanted us to set up our, our tabernacle, our church shop, if you will, to continue the promise we spoke about last week in Genesis 12, to bless the nations he's put in front of us. And when we started our church... We had some key criteria that we were really striving for. We wanted it to be a church that loved all people, no matter where they were coming from in life, because we value that process in the middle. We wanted to be a church that deeply cared for each other. This is why I always regularly comment on our, our community here. It's just impressive to me to see the level of love and care you all have for each other. And it's, it's a, a, an important thing that we are a place that doesn't expect people to walk in the door with an ideal about what they should be in Jesus, but that we've created a place where people can actually come in and say, like, I know I'm not yet this in Jesus, and I'd really like some help getting there. That is how sanctification happens. That is how churches grow. And we also prayed that God would make us a church, and I want you to hear what I'm about to say right now, because I think it's one of the greatest problems crippling the modern church today. I also prayed that we would not just be a church that recognized growth, as numerical value alone, which is so common and an absolute mistake made every day in the modern church world. I want you to think about this. It is deeply ironic that the number one marker the modern church uses to gauge their present circumstances is how many people fill a room on a Sunday. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about our public worship, but what I'm saying is, is it's interesting that this is like the least biblical metric of health in the Bible. Meaning it's like not even really touted anywhere. But it is the driving factor upon which we gauge all success. And if you think this doesn't have an effect on people's lives, it does. What happens is is if you have invested, you know, if you try to pour your life into three people and only one receives it, we live in the world that says, well, why didn't the other two get it? And we walk around in these sort of zones of discouragement. But what I'm telling you is that God cares about our faithfulness period. Fruitfulness is his bag. We can, I cannot manipulate fruit. That's what he does. Faithfulness is what matters in our lives. And so we live in this world where uh, it's, cr- it's crazy if you think about it. The number one metrics for church health, they, they have to be changed because half of them are not even in the Bible. And this is why I'm thankful for the group of th- the networks we run with. We use this literal language in our networks where we say the scorecard has to change because churches have essentially said. Um, you know, we, we're, we're big and we've got a ton of money while their congregants have been tearing each other apart outside of the building, right? That, these things don't indicate health or the lack of it. What I'm telling you is you're going to be hard-pressed to find all of the metrics we value in the instant result world in the Bible. And this is why we have historically prayed for growth in a very particular way. We don't pray for numbers here. I've never prayed for that. We pray for God to increase our ability to make disciples, and when you make disciples, numbers follow, but they follow in very different ways. In other words, if we just say, let's fill a room or let's fill something, you, you know, you can fill rooms. Like, I bet that if next week I put in, uh, you know, advertise some things about like, for example, maybe we were going to give away 10 iPads. Uh, I bet we would have a couple of filled movie theater rooms, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that we're making a disciple, though. Why is this prayer, the the particular nature of this, been so significant for us over these past years? Because it's connected to a clear vision. The name restoration was birthed out of this idea of us being restored to God and each other. And to be restored to God means you enter the process of discipleship. And to walk with other people in Christ means you are being discipled and discipling others. That is the way that we pray for God to work amongst our family. And he's done some really amazing things over the years in this area. And I want to share a few with you here in a moment. And that's why throughout this series, we're going to be clarifying terms. I think it's really important. We're going to be talking about, I said this in our annual letter last year, the importance of praying and training. These two words are going to come up a lot. Because we cannot expect God to bring about his kingdom if we're not asking him to do so. Remember, it's his kingdom. And we are invited to participate like endlessly we we can go as far and as deep and be as committed to the kingdom as we want to be that option is ours And so this concept of us being a people who pray, some of us got together on Friday night and prayed together, it was a beautiful thing, some of our leadership, we're gonna be encouraging this over the months, that this happens more and more in both formal and informal ways because this is how disciples are made and prayer precedes every major movement of God. And by movement, I simply mean men and women taking their next steps with Jesus, whatever that looks like. That type of growth is all throughout the Bible. It, it's found everywhere. In fact, it's so common. It's, this idea is sort of the way that Jesus frames church growth or progress in a multitude of places. And I'll share one with you right now from Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 32. Jesus is in this, like, he's in this sort of teaching mode where he's giving a lot of kingdom parables. And a parable, the best way to describe a parable, I like to say anyways, is it's, a, it's a, an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. In other words, parables are sort of like Jesus taking the way it should be, the economy of God, and he he puts these in stories that make sense to us so we can get a glimpse of what the kingdom in its fullness looks like. And in Matthew 13, 31 through 32, we read this. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Now, this is an interesting parable because a mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds on earth. It's very tiny. It's not the smallest, but what this would have communicated to people was, how does that little seed become a home for the birds of the world? And the vision Jesus is communicating to us here. Keep in mind, there is no Christianity like we know it today. There are there are no church plants or established denominations. There's just a bunch of people listening to this guy, Jesus. Talk about the kingdom a lot. And the vision he communicates here is is that the kingdom is meant to grow. It's actually going to grow. Like with or without us, it's going to grow. Better with us, right? Why? Because the promise of the kingdom is too good to be privatized or buried deep within your heart or mind. The goodness and grace of Jesus we read about in passages like this and in just the way that he treated people and the way that he died for our sins, it is meant to be received, shared, and spread with the people in our lives who are without it and those who need it. According to Jesus here, think about his vision. The kingdom is designed to start out as something very small. What he's saying is it looks like it's insignificant, unimportant. If he had dropped a mustard seed before that group of people showed up to listen to him, not a single person would have seen it. It would have got buried in the dust. Yet what he tells us here is that that seed is going to spread in very slow and methodical ways. For thousands of years throughout the world. And it will continue to do so until the Lord returns and takes us home once and for all. This is the kind of kingdom growth the Bible talks about regularly. It's by making new disciples. And hear me when I say this. This is going to be a hard one to say. And being willing to release them to do good in our world. This is the thing I believe most in what I'm going to say this morning. And it's the one that I have the hardest time with. Just being very frank. So please uh, do not conflate influence with size. Size. Because our ability to make disciples means we have to embrace the concept of a church that sends. Doing this, believing that, you know, using sort of what we would call like unhealthy metrics, actually can be very costly for a church, and it can be a worldly mistake. One that leads us to, to idealistic, not a realistic vision of our future. And so for the remainder of our time this morning, I just want to paint a picture of some of the things God has already done through our church And remember, when I say our church, I'm not talking about a generic noun called restoration. I'm talking about us, the people that are in other states and other parts of the world that were with us, the people that are here with us now, the folks that are a part of our body but are not in this room at this moment, the folks that are in community groups out there, I'm talking about the cumulative history of our church. And here is just a very uh, very partial list of the evidence that God has already moved in our midst over these past nine years. I was sort of blown away writing this stuff and I felt like I could have spent like 10 more pages talking about this. But I want to highlight some big things. First and foremost, this church began. It's, it's here. We're here nine years later in what we now call a post-Christian culture. Meaning every single day, the, the once benevolent and properly viewed Christianity in our culture is a little less benevolent and viewed a little less importantly. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Christianity. I'm just saying... In our world, Christianity is perhaps now, more than ever, a a scrutinized faith. And it should be, frankly. I've I've said here before that if we're going to tell people to give your life to something and follow Jesus, you reorient your whole life around him. we should be asking some questions about that stuff. And so these things don't scare me. When the world is asking a lot of questions about what we believe and why we believe it, these are good things. This is, again, if we have idealistic expectations of what we think is i'm going to go into that foyer and say hey everybody don't go see bad boys 19 come over here and have church with us and they're just going to all listen and come here that's not how it works that's an ideal but the realism is we have to we have to be the seed we have to be the folks sort of scattering seed and working in the world and so restoration began think about this this was in 2009 actually 2008 if you think about it because i was talking to somebody about moving here living in another state and at one point there was one member of this church do you know who that person was it was me. That's it. That's all we had here was me. And I took a lot of convincing. Like, I was writing this thing out, wondering, like, how is this even going to work? And then, do you know who the second member of Restoration was? Corinne, my wife. And that was a hard sell, too. She, you know, I wasn't sure where we were going with that. But, but she eventually became a, a partner here at Restoration with me. And there was Restoration. The second member was her. And I just want to say this, that um, I'm really thankful for that. Uh, in fact, to be very honest with you, we probably would not be here today if it were not for her because I've shared most with, I've shared a lot of this with you personally. But um, we, I'm sort of very urban by nature. I like big cities. And I was living in another big city. And we were so concerned. I was so concerned that coming back to Florida was going to be a bad move for us because there was not enough concrete here for me. And I, I'm telling you that I don't think we would be here if it were not for Jesus really directing us. And, and my wife's wisdom and input on this situation. And so I made a joke about her being committed, but the truth is you should probably thank her more for this church than me because I think I'd still be sitting in a flooded New Orleans apartment pastoring a church on the west side of town if it were not for her. But I did get the wife thing squared away in case you're concerned. That's in good shape now. She's been here for nine years. And from there, we moved to like 20 people who met in my living room. And from there, we went into a coffee shop. And all you have to do is look around. There's stuff going on essentially in the whole side of this theater right now. Kids meet here, youth meet here, community groups meet throughout the week, hospitality takes place, some of you grab lunch with each other during the week, I get invited into, it's, it's, a, it's beautiful to see the sort of the, the effects that have happened over these past nine years. And true to what I'm teaching today, everyone sitting in this room, uh, at that point anyways, at some point we had to think beyond what wasn't here. We had, to, we had to think about the what could be. And we prayed an awful lot, and God did some pretty amazing things. He worked. Another example of some great things God has done. Since our launch, we have a steady stream of people that have come to faith in Jesus. We have baptized people in his name. We have dedicated families to helping them raise their children in Jesus. You have invested in each other. Many of you have invested in my children. I mean, I have actually sought several of you to do this. There's a beauty here of a type of growth that actually cannot even be reported on a denominational metric. I cannot report, uh, like, for example, there's a couple of people here who spend time with my son. I, n- mo- no denomination has ever asked me, like, how many people in your church invest in your son's walk for Jesus Christ? That metric doesn't exist in health, But I'm telling you, it's probably the greatest health that I see here. It's these types of ideas. And so these partnerships we develop, these, these metrics, these, these ideas of being a church that, that send, they're very important to us. While seeing people move away, hear me here, if we want to be a church that actually grows and moves forward for God, then what we have to be is a church that is willing to both receive and release. And this is the hardest thing I'm going to say this morning. I believe it with all my heart and dislike it with every fiber of my being. While seeing people move away here is a hard thing. We are in a very transient area. There's no denying that, okay? Uh, For a number of reasons. But while seeing this uh, as people move away, because we're so tight-knit, as our, our DNA is anyways, we have to recognize that one of the ways God moves his kingdom around is by sending people places. Like, I'm here because we moved, many of you are here because you moved, and we have some wonderful people that have moved, that we still are in contact with, but they are spreading the seed in the places they sent them, not now, but in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a, a, a story, we're, gonna, we're going to attempt to use some technology, I'll let you know how that works that morning, but uh, we had a, a young couple here that went to chiropractic school several over the years, and they opened a clinic uh, in Maryland, and they named it restoration after the impact we've, we, we've had in their life. And so w- the, the pendulum of the kingdom is swinging in many ways. And what I want to say here is as hard as it is to receive and release, we cannot be a kingdom-minded church if we do not embrace that. And that is gonna, that's going to cut deep when, a fa- when you're a family. But the truth is that the disciple-making legacy we started here doesn't end here. It begins here, and it is God's prerogative to move it where where he sees fit and how he sees fit. And so in this area, we prayed for a disciple-making legacy, and God brought one about. And think about it. Part of being a disciple-making church is being willing to subtract from your body. No metric for this. It's being willing to release that which you don't want to lose. But you know God has a different plan and a different way to continue to bring about the promise that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 13. Over the years, we've sponsored several residencies, both formal and informal, with the hopes of training up the next generation of leaders in God's kingdom. And the training portion here, I just mentioned this briefly, this year we want to open that up a little more widely, meaning we want to help you develop your gifts. We want you to know that uh, training for ministry or learning how to be equipped for the kingdom of God, as Paul says in Ephesians, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, is not just restricted to people that are called to be a pastor and go to seminary. In fact, the kingdom would not move forward if that was the only case. The true, the true muscle of God's church and movement has always been through the congregant. It's been through the laity. It's been through the people of God, as we'll see in Nehemiah. And so this is a year where we want to not only be praying about things, but we want to be taking next steps to be developed in the areas that we think Jesus is leading us in. We prayed that God would make us a church that would care for orphans, and that initiative still exists to this day. It was launched when my wife and I adopted a child. Adopted a child. We, have, we have sponsored families to adopt children. We care for the orphan. We care for the foster child. We have a, a one more child table in our foyer right now. This ministry exists here, and people have been blessed because of the, the theological significance of adoption in the Bible, God calling us his sons and daughters. We feel like that needs to be perpetuated on earth through, through the physical bond of adoption, and we have supported it in whatever way we can. We also pray that God would give us great opportunities to serve and care for the community that we live in. And I'll just say this here, that there's not even a way for me to count the hours that have been invested. There are thousands, trust me here, thousands of hours that have been invested in our community, in people in your lives personally, through official things. Like, for example, we might say the... The Palmetto House, that's one ministry that's an official ministry, okay? But there's lots of things that go on that are not official ministries of our church. They're just the way you go out and do good in the name of Jesus. And so we have nine years of affecting our community, sometimes in ways we've seen and other times in ways that we do not yet see. But again, it's not about our fruit. It's about the faithfulness to this command. We've also been—we've uh, proven to be a generous church, we have an active benevolence fund, we support Compassion International because we believe in caring for orphans. All, you all just helped to send a team to Roatan a couple of months ago and every year we provide Christmas to students in Volusia County, we provide Christmas to good families that have fallen on hard times. We've seen people's lives change, we've seen breakthroughs, we've seen, I, I can't tell you the kinds of conversations we had in community groups, especially the ones in my living room and we did all of this so that we could be a place that was honest not just before Jesus, but before each other, so that we could really communicate to each other. And, and, and we created a place where you could come and say, like, I'm not yet this in Jesus, and I'd, I'd like to figure out how to, how to get there. And what I'm saying here is we didn't want this to be a place where judgment and legalism ruled the day. We prayed that God would make this a place where grace reigned supreme, so we could grow into the image of Jesus. And I'm thankful that we've got nine years of that here. And so the way God has used us in these areas is nothing short of amazing. And remember, I've not even shared everything with you. The interesting thing about this is that the, there's so much more that can be said, but I don't have the time to do it. But these are just a handful of the ways that God has actively been working in our church. And maybe your closing question here, here's how we'll wrap up this morning, is, is well? The, if the what is, is is good, which it is pretty good right now, why should we care about the what could be? Well, here's why. There are good things going on in the life of our church. But it's important that we have a commitment to make new disciples. Those of you sitting here and those that are in our world. And it is critical that we know that our ability to influence the world in deeper and more significant ways grows with every disciple we make. And that's how I'd like us to understand what we mean by growth. What does it mean to help somebody find Jesus, grow in Jesus, and dedicate their life to Jesus? And I actually get excited thinking about that kind of stuff. Thinking about how Jesus has used us and and the ways that he wants to use us in the future uh, for, for his glory as Jesus said, like we can ask anything of him so long as it brings glory to the Father in heaven. And I get excited about these things because this is a church that we have we we've, we've strived to make Sunday not the catalyst of your like the end game of your faith. In other words, like we live for Sunday. We've tried to build even this weekend experience as as the foundation that helps you live for the other six and a half days of the week that you are actually out being mustard seeds. Frankly, think about that. This shouldn't be like we get to it. This should be the kind of thing that is the rejuvenation point for us to then go out and continue to bring about the promises God gave Abraham in Genesis and the ones we read in Matthew and the, the general way that God has worked in Nehemiah and all these areas. Our church has never been afraid. We've never lacked the guts to ask about the what could be. And we're in another one of those seasons right now. A lot of critical things in front of us, which we'll unpack over these next weeks. So my hope in this series is that, that this will show us, especially as we sort of move away from this idea of what we mean by vision, that, w- that there are amazing things God has done. This is off the cuff, and I'll, I'm just going to say it, but a lot of times I'll talk to you, and um, you'll refer to us as a small church. And the truth is, like a small church in America, by the stats, is 40 people. So... When everybody shows up, we're three times that size. If you want to just talk numbers now. And what I'm telling you is is that language, I'd like to not ever hear that again. That's a, that's a request for me, not a command. Because when we say that, what we do is we can't have a conversation like what we're having right now. We cannot look at the cumulative impact we have had. And if we think that way, we're never going to see the future for us. And so my hope is this series will show us How God's people, the only prerequisite is that we're pursuing him. How God's people, Nehemiah, united under this common desire to love and serve God. They did great things for God. And as we read Nehemiah, it gives us this wonderful opportunity not to evaluate our walls. Like our our walls are not burnt to the ground and in decay. That's not our story right now. I like to think that we are sort of talking about adding a second story to a house that is already fairly healthy. We're going to put an addition on this thing over the next year. And here's why this is important, and I promise you, this is the last thing I will say. The unfortunate and all-too-common story of a church like ours, one that's vibrant and, and healthy and has really good rhythms of community and really cares about the truth of the Bible and wants to make Jesus known. Churches like this, the more we mature and establish, even as we pray for space, I'm going to say this a lot in the weeks that come, one of the greatest things that can impede the, the, the sort of DNA of a body like this is getting into a static space. It can be a blessing and a curse. So we don't want to sort of move into something more permanently and lose what we've got here. I'd rather be in a movie theater for the rest of my days. I mean, I'm praying that's not the case, but the, what's in this building is what matters. And so we can firmly settle into the what is. That's the story of humanity. We lose the desire to adventure. We lose the desire to see the future. And the more we rest in the what is, we want to be thankful for the what is. But the more we rest in that, the less likely we are to think about what could be for us. And that's why we're having this discussion right now. For your own life individually, your what is, and what our uh, could be is together. And so as we close this morning, ask yourself, when it comes to your life in Jesus, your faith in Jesus, your walk in Jesus, and the way you all make up the body of Christ here at Restoration, what is Jesus saying to you And what is it you will do about it?